0: Hello,
1: and welcome to the Humanizing Growth Podcast Series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIG founders Frank Von Dendriest and Mark DeSwan Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com.
0: Good morning, good afternoon. Good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to the Institute for Real Growth's Humanized Growth series. I am Mark De svane uh, your host today, and interviewer slash conversationalist with somebody very special, Sylvia Lagnado. Uh, Sylvia, I will tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you've done in, in a, a few seconds. But um, first, a big welcome. And, uh, and tell me, before we even start, Uh, Where are you and how are you?
1: Hi Mark Uh, Always uh, uplifting to talk to you (laughs) so looking forward to a bubble of uh, uplift. I am in Sao Paulo I've been uh, Kind of in lockdown in Sao Paulo in Brazil for all these months. I moved here in February February 1st after 31 years away and This is uh, where I am. I'm very well. We moved uh, Just Richard and I, the kids, as you know, have grown and gone. So uh, about a year and a half ago, Richard and I had this crazy idea that maybe it was time to reconnect a little bit with our roots. We're both born here. We both left when we got married 31 years ago. A crazy idea on a walk somewhere, uh, which is something we love doing, turned into a plan and then into reality. So we got here and moved back to pretty much where we grew up. I am in particular incredibly aware of how lucky and privileged we are. And I think that makes it even more so being here, uh, given not only what's happening, but what's, what is happening out of what's happening, which is a much bigger number of people in trouble. Uh, but we're super well, we're all good.
0: I'm gonna give you a proper introduction because of course you deserve that and, and, and make a big caveat. Uh, right at the beginning, because this is not just uh, any interview or conversation. Uh, Sylvia and I have become uh, very close friends over the last uh, twenty-five years or so, because uh, Sylvia and I were colleagues at Unilever, and I remember very well meeting you for the first time. Uh, I had just landed a job as the the head of internet marketing, <laughs> some global de- global department that consisted uh, out of myself and and and, and two other people. And written the first um, guidelines uh, slash training on how brands could perhaps benefit from uh, engaging with their consumers through the internet and I was doing a tour of the world um, basically lecturing colleagues and um, distributing a booklet that we had made with the marketing academy and uh, the the c m o at the time said um, you need to go talk to this woman in Argentina. She's Brazilian, but she's posted there. She's your Latin American representative. And um, we met and subsequently jumped on the plane almost immediately and uh, and covered off a few countries, including Brazil, where uh, the later CMO, Simon Clift, was at the time uh, the the CEO of the company, general manager. And uh, sitting in the plane, comparing notes, and actually talking about where marketing was going, I think we struck uh, a friendship, uh, both on the subject matter as well as uh, personally. So it's a very, very special to then reflect on a career that uh, was already a high-flying career then, but you quickly proceeded after some uh, very big roles in Latin America in personal care. Uh, Sylvia in 2000 uh, was appointed as uh, the first global brand director for Unilever and she was appointed Global Brand Director for one of the most important and probably now the most important brand, Dove. And there was no no such thing as a Global Brand Director and I'll never forget, and this is where our stories intertwine, that Sylvius was very excited about the role and said, look, I know everything about uh, building a brand and I think I can do this at the global level. But I know very little about how to do that in terms of building a coalition internally, actually building a marketing machine uh, within this company. More about that later. But uh, Sylvia went on after huge success because that was the start of the Dove campaign for real beauty, debunking the myth of real beauty, which was recently, I think last year, um, awarded the the best campaign of the last 30 years. Uh, So not a small feat. You then went on to become um, the chief marketing officer of Bacardi. You became the chief marketing officer of McDonald's Global, and now you are um, not chief marketing officer, but uh, chief sustain growth or a sustainable growth mark officer for Natura and Co. And more about that uh, fantastic company in a minute. But it's. Um, It's a a very impressive career. They're all marketing leadership roles. They're all global roles. And we'll touch upon learning and experience along that journey. But perhaps we are, and you referred to that a a minute ago, perhaps start where we are now. Um, You've been observing all of this from Brazil, a a country in the news a lot. What as a marketer and as a person, as you you look at what has happened over the last uh, three to four months, what are your, your, your most profound observations and what are your most important learnings?
1: Uh, as you said, uh, I took this role uh, recently. So it's February that I went back to work and we're talking about unplugging and taking time off just before we went online. And I'd forgotten that I had just unplugged for five months and I had already forgotten. I was saying how jealous I am and I had have to have the, have the courage to, to do it. Then, then you reminded me, you've just done it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so that's how the last few months feel like. I mean, it's been incredibly intense. I took on a role that was meant to be a medium to long-term outlook type of role. So in this role that, you know, chief growth officer kind of in fashion. Uh, my boss, who's the CEO of Naturoco, Co., wanted to have one of those. <laughs> uh, it became me. Uh, uh, we decided to call it Sustainable Growth Officer because Natura, uh, which is the founding company for the group, but uh, then with the acquisitions of uh, uh, Aesop a few years back and then the Body Shop and then this year completing the acquisition of Avon, it became uh, Natura & Co. But Natura was founded with this uh, huge belief that it's possible for brands and companies to make a difference and, and very much make a difference. Uh, it's almost not consumer or human driven. I mean, it's not consumer driven, it's kind of humanity driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the founders of Natura have this dream that they can make a dent uh, in, in the world in a positive way by fixing or having an impact on big issues like the screwed up relationship that women have with time. Uh, or what happens to children, you know, up on birth and things that you could do to children when they're born that could change their future. So, massage parents, mothers massaging their kids at birth, you know, they have incredible passion for uh, how that can change the future uh, direction of a child. Or the Amazon, which is you know a massive topic of passion for the group, and and we do a ton of stuff in product terms, but also activity in the Amazon. So. So it's a group that is formed with that in mind and those acquisitions, we're looking for like-minded companies. But I came to this role to be called Sustainable Growth Officer and how we could sustain that philosophy in the way the company evolved and the way the company grew and in everything that we did. So back to a question, suddenly I arrived here and one of the things that I have beyond, you know, what's going to happen to technology and digital in the group, to brands, to sustainability, I have this thing on the side, which I took it as a, on the side, internal and external communications. Hmm. And as you mentioned before, you made me see so much in terms of the importance of internal communication. When I took the global role on Dove yeah. and, and I learned a ton, but in terms of external communications really hadn't done any of, obviously I've been a marketer for so many years, but an external communications and even internal in time of crisis, just zero. So I was terrible at it and I had to put so much effort. So I was exhausted and still tired, but better now and challenged and busy and doing things I'd never done before. Uh, but I guess the most important thing that was such a surprise and, and amazing surprise is, obviously I work in a company where it's for the good of everything. So everybody is meant to come in you know, with the heart, with their good intentions, it's part of the culture, it's DNA, but it's just been incredible to see what's possible to get done, despite all the complications and all the crisis, to innovate, to, to do strategy, to launch things, to change things uh, in, like, in days. So I guess my biggest learning has been what's possible, uh, the speed and the quality and the intensity and people just seem to show their best selves for it. I've been amazed how it's been caring, compassionate, you know, things that you know, you know, are not my strength. You know, it's not my I sometimes forget the people in the pursuit of the thing. Right. And it's terrible and it's something I always want to improve. But it's just been incredible how enjoyable even it's been to discover how much we can do together. So I think that's been my biggest yeah. learning. One, technically how to do communications at moments of crisis. And I'm still not good, but I'm less bad. And the other is the, the potential of... And I think that's going to yeah. change how we work for the future.
0: If I paraphrase what you just said, um, I think a lot of the same participants talked about having done things that usually would take 10 years to do in weeks. Because suddenly there was an understanding. And I think that actually is, um, is something to really talk a little bit more about, because it sounds like we have a window. There's a window where uh, the marketer who typically is the window to the outside world and tries to translate that to the inside of the company and tries to build um, the one version of the truth around opportunities and challenges that the company and its brands and its propositions need to address. and, and that's difficult. It's about stakeholder management. It's about engagement. It's about inspiring storytelling, but people have to be willing to listen. And that's very often not the case, either because they have other priorities or other stakeholders that they think are more important. And now suddenly we seem to be in a world for most companies where actually the senior leaders are again listening and saying, wow, everything's been shaken up. What are the new priorities? It strikes me though, that actually they may learn from a company like Natura who has for such a long time, maybe always, been focused on that. Can you talk, I mean, I know that this is not just a happenstance appointment. You were a board member of Natura Mm -hmm. uh, before you actually decided to step into uh, um, an executive role again. So can you talk a little bit about why why Natura and talk a little bit about the history of Natura? Because I think most of the listeners just won't know it. So I've been on the board of
1: Natura for... I was on the board for about five years when I took some time off after Bacardi, I wanted to be on boards and I so wanted to be on the board of Natura. So at the time I came to Brazil and knocked on the door of Alessandro, who's the CEO. They told me the board is a mess. They meet like, not mess, but like discipline, Brazilian discipline at its best, which means zero. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and just no way that could work with you living in London. And, uh, and then a year later, they changed, the chairman of the board, anyway, they called me, a headhunter called me, it was kind of a different circumstances, and, 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 and here I was. Uh, Natura had, and every Brazilian knows it, uh, it's today with the acquisition of Avon, we're the largest uh, personal care beauty company in Latin America, ahead of all the other big players in market share, in value market share. And it's always been big in Brazil and well-known and then increasingly so in Latin America. But it was a Natura, it was a Brazilian company founded 50 years ago by this incredible man whom I spent two hours on the phone with yeah, two days ago. And it's just some very special moments who says, I don't want to talk about EBITDA. I don't want to talk about share. I want to talk about the difference we're going to make in the world. I mean, that was 50 years ago. <laughs> it was founded to make a difference uh, it was obsessed with planet impact, was obsessed, you know, environmental impact, was obsessed with social impact back then. So, like, the world has caught up with it. Uh, but it has built brands within the company always, and I mentioned two examples based on a philosophical desire, you know, a, a position based on either a philosophical point or a desire to make a difference. But, uh, but, all the lines that Luis Abra helped create are like that. So Kronos is like that, which, you know, about women's relationship with time, i.e. aging is, you know, screws us up a little bit in the way we, we, we see ourselves. And, uh, and, and it was actually an incredible source of inspiration for Dove. And, uh, and what he said to me uh, two days ago is that when he was in New York City, and saw the Dove billboards for Campaign for Your Beauty, Uh, he had profound happiness. And I was like, what? And he said, I had profound happiness. I feel so strongly about that mission. I don't care who does it. And if a competitor does it, fine. You know, if I cannot get out of Brazil, out of Latin America to do it, and someone can do it globally, fine. Uh, so, so, So that view about you know, making sure that in the Amazon we can buy the ingredients there straight from the people, help them make more money in those communities than they would by chopping down the trees and therefore preserving the biodiversity of that region, then that's what we're going to do. So it keeps finding new ingredients that have properties that we can buy that they can sell, that therefore we keep the forest standing as opposed to being chopped down because someone else came with more money for those community people. So like everything is like that. So yeah. it's very special. You know, we all wish, don't we, that we <laughs> could be, you know, lead our lives like that professionally and personally. And I just couldn't resist when the offer came, and I was wanted to be in Brazil uh, to to join them. So, but it was they always had this idea they're very humble but they had this idea that it could go further than brazil and latin america and natura so they found esop a few years back which is a phenomenal company with incredible principles incredible values so they acquired esop i was on the board when they completed the full acquisition and then the body shop came up for sale the body shop had been founded by anita roddick this amazing woman they they admire her they adored her they met her a few times in the amazon and other things and it being in a way held back by L'Oreal, it just didn't belong in L'Oreal. Like the body shop yeah. is meant to be an activist, like crazy activist. Yeah. yeah. So we probably overpaid, I don't, you know, we never know if we overpaid or not, but we wanted it. And, and it was like with the desire to unleash that spirit of fighting for a more beautiful, fairer world. Yeah. And then uh, Avon, you know, Avon has a lot of synergies, but Avon also has this incredible commitment to women, to breast cancer, to, to domestic violence, to uh, uh, women's kind of independence. So and Entrepreneurship, in this leadership gigantic uh, synergy. So that's it. That's uh, who we are now. No I, it's, <laughs> so I, in, I, in like a uh, hundred countries now and you know so now it's got feels like a proper grown-up group and I'm doing another global role <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> which they don't have. So I'm on the you know I don't have the companies are autonomous, a lot of autonomy. And I I have to invent what I think will create value and convince them, and then do. And if I don't, I have nothing to do, but I've been very busy. (laughs)
0: Uh, I I mean, uh, everybody listening in um, will understand why uh, we're taking a break after this, but why you are uh, in these humanized growth series, not just you as an individual. I want to talk a little bit more about you in a minute, but also uh, your company. What a story. I, I think so many companies are now understanding uh, and, and also for the first time, perhaps prioritizing many of the principles that you just quickly reviewed and then to, to learn from companies that have done it for such a long time, in many ways is the purpose of these series, uh, Sylvia. Um, you know, what we're not trying to do is um, make stars out of the people we feature. Um, we're trying to help, and, and, and at the moment there is uh, you know, 60 to 70 uh, CMOs and others, very senior growth leaders listening, and they're all very strong. Uh, they all, in, in, to, 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 to a large degree, want to actually achieve this in their organization, but many of them are also uh, facing resistance, whether it's uh, because of short-term results, certainly because of the COVID crisis increased. Um, you know difficulty to um, to 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 talk about anything about uh, then protecting the, the health of the company and and then convincing the companies and their peers that actually uh, this is about the health of the company that the results follow when you take an approach such as this uh, and stories like yours and actually Natur Co that is highly profitable highly successful are the ones that actually convince so I want to actually go back. And just uh, first at the personal level, unpack a little of the journey and start with, I I, I mean, I know you were successful before then, but I'd like to go to that moment that ultimately led to that billboard on Times Square that you just mentioned. Dove probably put purpose on the map. As you said, uh, Natura was doing it, but Dove put it on the global marketing map. All conversations lead back to Dove Real Beauty. It was the first huge global campaign. I'd like you to go back a few steps before that and just talk about you. You get that new role and your purpose, your own purpose. How closely were they inter- interlinked? I mean, maybe just start there. What 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 is what do you consider to be your purpose? Uh, Mark, I think
1: you know. I find this a hard question. I you know in my several moments of coaching and different types of coaching. And I think at one moment we were working together during the time on Dove when I was searching the answer to that question. I don't have a nicely, you know, all this time, but I, I, I say the two things that guide me a lot. One is, and I, I do think it links to why I fell in love with the Dove brand, which is integrity and authenticity. It's helped me a lot to, and I don't know when I became aware and like practiced it even more is whatever I think is right and fair and true is the, the, the choice I'll take. Uh, and I've had, you know, especially in my career, some moments where that cost me something, but I also have moments in my career where that was the breakthrough. And so, you know, that's it. That's, it's better to stick with it because it helps you stay at peace. I don't know. I was talking about that a little bit with Richard, my husband, last night, because I said to him, my other one is contentment. And he was like, what? I practice being happy with what I have. And I think it's partly easy because I'm so lucky. I have so much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, duh, of course you're content. Yeah. But, yeah. but I practice it. You know, When things are about to shake me, either make me very unhappy or they start to make me very unhappy, I change something. So I'm very comfortable with change, for example. And I think part of the reason I'm very comfortable with change is because I have to always go back to the state where I'm feeling relaxed and at peace and content with with what I have and so I guess those would be the two things that uh, I wish I had more compassion you know a deep down level you know practiced it without trying and we talked a lot about that over the time like I can get very task oriented very problem solver very the thing even if the thing is for somebody else I can get very excited about the thing uh, and sometimes if we forget to bring others along and you know we did a lot of work on that when we worked together which is obviously incredibly important in the context of a global job which is something that I've been doing from the day Flavio was born and when I got back from maternity leave so 26 years I've only ever since then I've only ever done global roles and there's no way you can do the global role without the people side uh, and bringing people along but anyway back to but I do think it it does mean that I tend to love brands like, you know, even McDonald's and, and and Dove, people, brands that are close to authenticity and to the real people.
0: I'd love to make it practical. You said off the cuff somewhere there, that means that sometimes sticking to your principles um, means that you... You didn't finish the sentence, but you probably meant like get demoted or get fired or, or get ignored. But that's, you know, that takes courage. I mean, that's really, really, I think what we're talking about. Courage to stick by your purpose. Courage. I mean, I, I actually always joke, uh, as you know, purposes in Frank, the co- other co-founder of the Institute for Real Growth and I. You know, I think in many ways you set us down the purpose journey when we noticed in our evaluations of our own work that Dove's work was making us so proud. And then we looked at the other brands where we were most effective and, and just enjoying our work, and they were all very purposeful brands. But uh, it was one of the Marx brothers who said, uh, those are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have some others. And that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, you, you're talking about real consequences. Maybe talk a little bit about how that actually happened, because you put a purposeful brand that led to that billboard uh, on the map uh, in a world where you know executive committees weren't diverse; uh, they were all grey, male, and stale, as Frank likes to say. And uh, and here you are trying to convince them of showing women in their full glory. Uh, talk a little bit about the engagement strategy, the courage it took, and so make it real, would you?
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I think, uh, I think, yeah, I think it does start from the search for the truth and the need to be authentic in a personal level that, so anyway, I I had worked with the Dove brand uh, before I took leadership of the brand globally, because when I was in, in deodorants, uh, and Procter & Gamble, with a single brand, was having a lot of success in Italy uh, in the caring side of deodorants. And then Nivea, you know, Biosdorf was starting to make inroads with Nivea deodorant, but tiny. And we saw an opportunity in the deodorant category to to have a, a more caring proposition. And, and I think, as you know, we we on a roll. We're, we had built an incredibly successful deodorant business for Unilever very quickly, which was the golden days of my career when i learned how to be not just a, a math nerd but a, a marketer uh, that was my like lesson and Simon Clift and all, all that era that the people here who know a little bit about Unilever will know it's, it's incredibly exciting but we felt very strongly there's a space for a caring brand we went on a fight inside Unilever to let the detergent side of the company let us launch in the personal care side of the company that, that time was a massive silo uh, and, and we got approved after, I don't know, a year trying to convince them. We launched in Italy and in Chile. It was a big success. And I had been part of all that journey. And I loved the brand. Like, I absolutely loved the brand. Loved everything I got taught about why it was the way it was. Uh, so when the time came and Unilever created the global brand VPs, and, and, I, and Simon said, would you come and do one of them? And I was in Argentina, super happy, running deodorants for Latin America. Dove was one of the brands. And I said, "Well, I'll do it if it's that one, and you know which one, <laughs> uh, which is what took me to that job in the US." And obviously, super excited about the idea. Of they wanted the Dove role to be in the US. That's the the birth of the brand, and I was super excited about living, you know, near New York or in New York, and 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 leading. Well, at the time, was Unilever's biggest brand. Uh, I just had Ali Freddy who finally is in charge of the brand globally. It's just like, hallelujah. Uh, It was just me and Ali and, uh, and, and, you know, this matrix organization that we all know. So anyway, it, it, it was, there's so much there and the history of why Dove was a success and the history of the testimonial campaign. But that thing was kind of wallpaper. It was becoming wallpaper. We launching too many markets, too many categories. There's incredible story behind we, why we only allowed women to speak on how the brand had made a difference to them. They weren't even allowed to talk about what the difference was unless they explained how and how they felt. I'm just stunning. And it spoke to me a lot to do with my childhood. You know, I was the, ugly of the ugliest of the four women in the house. I thought so. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, there's just a lot there that, uh, that, that resonated. I had studied it a lot. So we went on a search for a new refreshed positioning that was true to its history, but that would have more resonance and found and, and then fell in love with, you know, with the, what then became Campaign for Your Beauty on Paper at a positioning level, the idea that we could become more of a beauty brand, which we needed to because of, we wanted to be successful in hair care and skin, et cetera. You know, cetera. The soap was kind of with toilet paper in the US. So we tried to take that brand from the soap shelf to the beauty shelf. And, uh, and I, I don't know, we just got, uh, that's when my courage comes in. You get so sure that something can work, not that it's going to work, but can work. Yeah. Uh, but then like, I don't know, I just then became obsessive with, we had to make it happen. And, uh, and then was the search for what, what that what was. Uh, but yeah, there were a lot of people who thought that, that that was crazy that uh, there's no way you can debug stereotypes in beauty and be a beauty brand and that that would not work that that, that's not how the beauty category works that it works with aspiration we said no but it can work with inspiration no it can't yes it can no we can't Uh, so there are a few people to to convince uh and yeah i mean i think that and then, then we start to play some dirty games, like grab them by the heart, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, and I. That's one, one story, story that I have
0: I, to tell. No, everybody
1: likes the story, so I'll tell it, but it's like make it short. But it came actually out of Daryl Fielding in and I in a brainstormed. She was the account manager at Dove, and we're like, how. At what can
0: uh, we, Ogilvy, I believe, right?
1: Ogilvy, yeah. Uh, what can we do to convince people, like to engage people, to get them? On, the, on board and, and I don't know what the context of the meeting was. We're doing some leadership training together. So we, went, we were kind of in that environment where you are thinking outside of the box. And uh, she said, why don't we do this? Which is why don't we get a film of the daughters of these whatever senior white male style uh, men and uh, about what they like about their bodies or what they don't like. And it turned out to be this stunning little super rough film that had their daughters without them knowing and that we used (laughs) quite strategically and tactically in meetings uh, to open the conversation about the the, the positioning and the the intent. And it's the, for those who know, many, many years back in the Super Bowl, a film was made uh, with little girls that was used to talk about the Dove Self-Esteem Fund. So it's a a known film because it was used for the Super Bowl. That is the polished copied version. (laughs) Of the internal film that we did with our children and yeah, so, I was eight years old on that film my daughter she's 26 now so I need a new story to tell
0: <laughs> yeah no no because I, I I know we're digging in the old uh archives here but I think there's so much relevance to uh, to today and to every leader we talk about uh, courageous and inspiring storytellers imagine the setting where indeed, um, you know, the executive committee of a corporation with uh, $50 billion in revenues, 200 and something thousand employees. And suddenly they're watching a film where they were judging it intellectually only. They were judging all the concepts that were being presented for the new dove positioning with one side of their brain. And suddenly there was a film with the people they loved most in their life, talking about the aspects of their body that they didn't like. Uh, I, I've been told by many people in the room about uh, tears you know, running down people's cheeks in the dark. Um, and, and this is something that I think anybody that has seen any of the films, and then the, the incredible history of Dove is that they've managed to reinvent this theme so often. And of course, not one or two of them have been as strong as the rest, but so many strong ones have been there because there was that single-minded purpose at the heart that everybody understood and it's a uh, i think it's a fantastic example of courage who does that and you and your team uh, i know that that was a a big part of your uh, success uh, did that and and that gets me to um the, and, and, the
1: and then, uh, uh, mark one thing which i don't know if someone sometime he might say i've got the, my memory wrong but klaus arts who actually did the you know we're searching for the campaign you know, we had the position, a long time to get the position, get everybody on board. Then you're looking for the creative. It was taking a long time. And, and I, you know, in the end, it was a piece of work that Klaus and Daryl and the European team of Okafi did for the body lotion that actually got us out of the rut of looking, uh, in, of finding a campaign. Because, you know, one thing is the brief, but we're still looking for the campaign. And I think to your point, Klaus one day said to me, and I think it was a classic meeting, you might have been there in Cancun, where... I was just like going crazy and said, come on guys, you have to do it. I, I, I'm not doing creative work. You know, me and Ali, I, you guys have to find a campaign. And Klaus said to me, I had a conversation with my wife about beauty and I tried to never talk about work. So we don't talk about this stuff. And, you know, we didn't have any reasons before to talk about beauty. And, and trust me, I'm going to find a campaign now after that conversation. So I just think, you know, we talk about, about consumers and this and this, but in the end, <laughs> uh it starts with you having your own belief out of transformation so anyway it's a much smaller thing but i think it's it it was a turning Mm. point as well
0: no no but we're talking about the theme of courage
1: work (laughs) if it wasn't for him creating that work maybe you would have found something mediocre you know
0: well but there's a there's a courage here so i want to zoom out a little bit to your role uh not just as the personal leader there but as a you know a cmo or in this instance a global brand leader um you're back in that role in many ways because you've got lots of countries trying to bring what you have defined as a a core purpose or for a brand. They're trying to bring it alive and trying to um, bring it to life with local relevance, but at the same time a global consistency there that leverages the strength of the brand and builds the strength of the brand. And almost every global brand that I've worked with over time has had this very difficult period when they're, when they're inspired by the words and they just can't get it right, creatively, you let. And talk about courage, because you've got two, you know, a year, two years where different countries are doing different things, people are judging you on everything, um, real money is being spent on campaigns, and many of them fall flat on their face until finally something goes, ah, we've got it. Um, and I think, you know, how did you, as you started to build the global community, and, and this is a this is a CMO responsibility as much as it is a, a, a global brand leader role. How do you build that sort of confidence in the, the 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 whole group that we're figuring this out, but we're on the right path? How do you bring people along on the journey?
1: Uh, so I, and I think that there's several. Obviously, we're all different. I think because I started from being a nerd and a data person and a you know engineer by training, and so I I, I think my 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 strategy starts tends to become a ton of homework, ton of asking people. So I think I'm perceived quite broadly and is being consistent all the time for being extremely curious to hear as many points of view as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and I like it. I always tell my team, I think it's a very difficult thing to do when you, you know, racy really things and all that stuff that we deal with in global teams, who's responsible for what? And if you're responsible for making the decision, uh, you start asking too many people and you get lost and you get worried and everybody thinks different. And how am I going to be able to get moving? So I see a lot of people not asking enough because they don't want to get confused and they, you know, they can't deal with that moment of, 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 you know, so many diverging views. And I love that. I love that. And I guess I love that because somehow my brain can deal with it and then can say, okay, I've heard all that, but this is now what I think. Uh, So I think combining that with, so, you know, and if you don't, if your brain doesn't work like that, you know, there are lots of people's brains that do so, you know, hang out with people who can, but I do think it's really important to listen and to be curious and to hear all oh, why it would work and why it wouldn't work, but then have a point of view. And I think what happens once, once I get the point of view, then the conviction kicks in. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah, and yeah. then I'm kind of a bit unstoppable in that. Then I'll, then it's about how to convince. Then is the point that I might not, you know, other than explaining in my own rational ways why, and if that doesn't work, I need to then expand my toolbox and have other people like Daryl coming in with something completely, you know, I don't think I would have had that idea of the, right. of the little girl's film. Right. Uh, so I think that I do personally start from the clarity of thinking, but not just clarity thinking, but clarity thinking formed by a lot of very divergent views and a lot of data. And I, and I do think... Uh, you know I'm yeah I think the authenticity comes in and helps so to then you know yeah. be happy to share how I feel and why I feel the way I feel <laughs> and when I'm wrong change so I think that helps give buy-in and I do think that I'm lucky and I think it's proven that women especially in early stages of their career they receive a lot of affirmation especially because not that I didn't have affirmation a lot as a child but I wasn't particularly a you know, I wasn't a happy child, but I wasn't a super happy child. I was very good at schools, good at sport, had a, a group of, you know, camp-related friends that gave me a lot of strength. But otherwise, I was the, you know, the bad-tempered child, the uglier, the, the problem one, the one with allergy, the one, with, the one that my mother wished was a bit more like the others. <laughs> but I had a lot of affirmation in the beginning of my career, a lot. And I'm lucky and thankful for that. And I think for women, that gives them a lot of confidence. So I think, you know, so I think I've got this built in strength of conviction uh, that, that uh, helps me get things done.
0: Well, so as you were talking That's there, about- you were, sorry, as, as you were talking there, you were uh, unknowingly bringing together aspects that uh, we capture in this uh, uh, growth CMO profile called the Da Vinci growth CMO profile. You, you, you talked a lot about listening. You talked a lot about curiosity, but also about storytelling and courage. And um, and so I, let me ask you to then actually zoom out a little on the role of the CMO. You've been the global CMO of Bacardi, of McDonald's, and now uh, Natura & Co, although the name has a slightly different, uh, but I think that's more, um, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's more qualifier to the philosophy of the company. Uh, wh- how do you uh, see the role of a CMO? And there's so many of them listening now. How, how has it evolved? How is it evolving? What The role of the CMO?
1: Yeah. Uh, look, I think, uh, I don't know. I think that so much has changed, but at the core, very little has changed. So at least personally, I always I mean, because I came from engineering, I applied to work in IT and logistics, this crazy man, maybe not so crazy at Unilever, out of the blue said, no, we'll take you as a round of trainees, but what what about marketing? Like I was by far the only non-creative or at least zero creative in the family. And I said, okay, fine, sounds like a good idea. And I went. (laughs) Uh, And so, and what they said is, don't worry, we'll teach you everything you need to know. Uh, and so I got, as part of the program, very heavily taught in those days, you know, two years of like, consumer insight, why, what, why that's important, uh, why, how brands get built and why the functionality is important, but why the emotional aspect is important in a very basic top notch. <laughs> textbook <laughs> uh, uh, marketing very early in my career. And because I came with zero, like nothing, just like keenness to learn and an inquisitive mind. And I don't think it's that, that's the bit that hasn't changed in my view. And I think the role of the CMO is really to remember that that is still <laughs> the, the companies and brands get built by uh, stories and products that manifest the story that are coherent that address a need or inspire people to, you know, to, to use them for their own affirmation, their own needs functional and their own definition of who they are. So I think that is at the heart and for me it's always been. Obviously the world now it's uber complicated, primarily because of technology. You can't build brands the way we used to the response that you get is more important than the stimulus that you create. <laughs> Media is incredibly complicated. Uh, if you don't use data, you fall behind because someone else gets better insights, whether it's behavioral insights or psychological insights, whatever, out of the data. So if you don't use it, so it's just got more complicated. Uh, so a lot more to learn and more experts to work with. But the heart for me is still, you know, the theory about how brands and businesses are built and, and practicing that theory i don't
0: know that makes sense but yeah it does you know a lot of um, companies i mean it's funny how you told about the, the 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 history of uh, natura and the role of the founder and what we find so often is that the, the you know when the founder is still there the company's often there to make as as you said exactly about natura to make a, a positive difference in the community that they're in uh, and at some point the founder moves on and often the bean counters take over and then you skip forward another 20 years and it's about delivering the next quarter and, and having forgotten by so many people around what actually the reason was that the company was created, that the brand was created. Yeah. Do, do you think that now, I mean, the CMO often gets that role back and the heads yeah. of brands, uh, but do you think now with COVID and, and companies spinning to try and find a new reality that they're in, and the place that they should claim and play and do you think that there's a a, a bigger role for cmos
1: yeah.
0: now and in and ahead uh I'm
1: trying to think of i mean we i'm sure everybody's gone through the same so uh COVID for us at least and i i, I think i'll be familiar with the same for two months it was just crisis management yeah and i i mean i think there are a few I think the I think the good at least in our case the good like what matters you know we have this crisis what matters and I think at least from reading most companies did the same art people matter the most so I think this was you know everybody was touched scared you know like you are personally vulnerable feeling yourself scared and people around you so there's this kind of thing that united everybody around the thing that matters the most is our people. Then we're going to worry about the bottom line. And I think that very quickly he said, Well, oh, better we worry about the bottom line, and I was going to hit our co- covenants, <laughs> you know, markers on our debt. So, you know, but, but it started with, I think, a very human yeah. reaction. So I, I wouldn't say that I had a bigger role than everybody else in bringing humanity back. I think we all did. Yeah. And I don't think anybody was saying, Oh, CMO or marketing people, the one responsible for bringing the humanity. What do you think? I think we all did it. So I would say that in a way, everybody took the, you know, the CMO role in terms of like, what about the people? And, and I wasn't HR doing it either. It was everybody. Yeah. Yeah. But, so I think, I think it validated the importance and the power of doing it. Um, and I think then in the second phase, at least for us, when we said, OK, so not about the future. What are the trends? What's yeah. going to be different? Then, then it was phenomenal, like incredibly exciting space for everybody in insights and in marketing to come in with their points of view or strategy, depending on how the different companies are organized. So yeah. then we had our come and tell us, how is the yeah, work going to be different? And it was pretty yeah. cool. Then suddenly we had like, whoo, out of all this running around, are we going to open a new warehouse to, yeah. to, to pick up e-commerce orders and closing the stores and opening more social selling tools? Then suddenly it's like, how is the world going to be different? So yeah, I think it was very exciting. I think in those companies, I'm sure the CMO and the insights team had a center stage, and yeah. uh, and it's and so I think that's a really nice opportunity. Yeah, uh,
0: this is interesting because uh, this what you just said um, was very strongly um, uh, a, a pronounced result in a, a survey we did among the uh, eighty or so and 90 CMOs participating in the Real Growth uh, Leadership Program. We asked about the the big lessons learned and and guidelines forward. And number one was um, uh, marginally at the top, but clearly important was just business resilience. A lot of companies um, just were caught with their pants down with product parked somewhere else in the world. Uh, cars not being able to be built because they were missing one crucial ball bearing that, you know, they couldn't get to the, to the plant on time. Uh, but number two, right away there was empathy. And uh, you know, the, 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 the Institute for real growth started this humanized growth program um, way, way earlier. But ju- during the program, what we've seen is just what you said, that um the, the people around us, where perhaps we were fighting or pushing water uphill to land messages, to sell strategies that put the human more at the center of an organization. Um, Frank and I um, worked on Insights 2020 in an HBR article two and a half years ago, uh, building the Insights engine. Now, everyone's ears are pierced. Everyone wants to understand. And so I think you're right. It's not about market suddenly being more important, but it is about using the moment never waste a crisis to now um translate that interest uh to yeah. um uh, to, to, to yeah.
1: a lot of new campaigns had to be redone because you know they had to reflect the context yeah. and they're so more emotional and so you know they already do beautiful work but like mother's day was incredible and it was done like from people's homes and you know a new new campaign created and shot and low budget and it was the most exciting they've ever and successful they've ever had at Natura. And it was just out of.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, so, I mean, obviously we had COVID and we still very much have COVID around mm-hmm. us, but then in, 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 um, a, a number of markets and I'm based in the U S uh, especially here, we've had the inequality, uh, and the racism, uh, discussion flare up and, and diversity questions. Coming right back to the agenda, uh, which I, in many ways, think I was a very natural next step because you're talking about humans, you're talking about inclusivity, and uh, and diversity and in- inclusiveness is something that uh, I think hit your agenda right at the moment when you when when you when you joined the company. I, I'd love you to talk a little bit about that because I think everyone can learn from that. And
1: yeah, I think uh, you know we were. Uh, uh, you know, in the in the makeup of a beautiful uh, a Pride Month activity, bringing the, the the companies together. You know, when when the the the, the big uh, kind of uh, moment happened in the U.S. Uh, with the killing and with everything that that came thereafter, straight after, with brands taking a position and 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 we. We're also interestingly in the not into coincidentally in the middle. I was extremely busy and I have to say, super proud that we didn't stop it. The work that was done to launch the Natura Co Group uh, commitment to life, it's called, which is the commitment to 2030 on sustainability. And that work had a lot had been done. Obviously, Natura had its own commitments, the body shop had its own, but we always knew we we're going to launch as a group. A ten-year commitment, and it, they're incredibly aggressive. You know, we're going to be net zero in ten years. We're going to be fully circular packaging and product in ten years. God knows why, but we will. And 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 we are going to fight even harder for to stop deforestation in the Amazon. But there's a pillar. So one is net zero carbon, and, and the Amazon one is full circularity of our product and our packaging. But the middle one in the way we show it is the people pillar. And we called it, uh, we'll defend human rights and be humankind. And we were having all the discussions about the targets and the metrics at the time. And, and it was, uh, we just decided to go further than we would have gone, I think, uh, especially on, on inclusion. Uh, on, on diversity, you know, this incredible percentage of women already, there's a very small gap to fill in the board and in senior management, but we're already 50-50 largely across the company uh, and on equity of pay for women there's a gap to close but we're going to close that very quickly but on diversity Natur in particular had done a beautiful work with for example disabled people and had set a target to get to 10% and got very close to it already like nine I think in very few years uh, in the whole workforce Uh, But we decided to use B Corp, Natura, and the body shop already, B Corp. Natura is the first ever public company to become a B corporation. And B Corp defined the diversity metric, the inclusion metric, in very ambitious terms. And they say to get the highest score, you have to have 30% of your people from the underrepresented groups. And we decided to go for that. So we decided to go for 30% of our management, which is harder, to be from underrepresented group within 10 years and underrepresented groups being what's relevant in that country. So it will change, the makeup will change depending on the country. Yeah, but yeah. so we'll see. So I think there is the intent and there was all the discussions that we had to decide what that metric and the ambition was going to be, which was beautiful discussions and, and very... Exciting! Uh, now we are already had a lot of meetings in the last week. On you know, so now what we're going to do across the commitment to life, <laughs> the commitment. Uh, we're signing up uh, some really close collaborations with the UN, on especially on the people and the net zero, and, and a lot of other collaborations with other companies. The company is called M because it's M companies, but it's also because we are we use this code to say we're about collaborating, cooperating, collaborating, cooperating co-creating yeah. and not competing. Oh, so really? the whole principle of the co yeah. is very important to I didn't the way- know
0: that. That's very inspiring. That's fantastic. Well I mean so we'll yeah, but That's- two things that I pick out of what you just said. I mean it's it, it's clear that this is in the core of who Natura and Co now is. Um, uh, but it's also clear that we're in a in a in a moment in time when company leadership is ready to have this conversation. And actually these conversations, yes, they take courage to have. Putting the humans at the center is clearly what's needed. And now it's possible. And I think stories like yours and and, and many of the other stories that we've had in this series and will have when we restart in September are about how you then as a company find your story and your purpose around human centricity. I think it's it's inspiring to hear how each of your brands is doing that specifically. We had Paul Pullman on in this series uh, a few weeks ago, and one of his um, um, uh, companies, it's called Imagine. They work with yeah. CEOs everywhere. You know this. One of his team, uh, Muriel Arts, has um, has led a, a module in our leadership program around. Okay, so now you are a brand. You know where you want to be focusing in the world. How do you? build the right collaborations between the SDGs, the sustainable development goals of the UN, because there is um, a business plan for the world there. It touches every aspect of life. And um, it sounds like um, you've been doing that. Uh, Are you open in the next year of the leadership program when we have the next cohort of CMOs that are trying to do this? Are you open in engaging interactively at some point with them on that?
1: Totally, yes,
0: totally, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, um, and our founder and, and Paul are part of the B-team. Uh, last suppose, yeah. two weeks, ago Guilherme showed the commitment to life to the B-team. I think I forwarded the note he got from Paul, I mean, yeah. uh, after he shared. I mean, I, I think, yeah, we're super, yeah, super, uh, it's, it's all about connecting. The way no,
0: it's, Sylvia,
1: to, it's, it's, it's more, it's...
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's all about connecting uh, summarizes what you bring here. I want to uh, start thanking you, um, respectful of the time and respectful, by the way, of um, all the Q&A and chat messages where, yes, there was a tactical question about Dove Men, but I felt that, quite frankly, uh, our conversation was going in a different direction. All other messages were from people that have either worked with you or have observed you working as a leader in the marketing community over the last uh, 25 years, I think we're talking now. And, um, and every single one of them is talking with the word inspiration, is talking about realness. And I think what you've demonstrated in this conversation that over a span of an enormous career that any marketer would sign up for, uh, you've, you've, you've brought together your own reality, your own realness, your own purpose, with brands that found their purpose and then made a really big difference in the world. Sylvia, uh, chapeau. I want to, I want to salute you. (laughs) I know that's makes you uncomfortable and that's part of who you are, but it's also (laughs) a lovely way to, uh, to end. So I'll give you the final word, but uh, I enormously want to thank you for your, uh, your honesty and transparency. Any final words from you?
1: I, I said I always feel uplifted talking to you. So thank you. It's another one. Nice way to end the week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, from here today, I want to say a big thank you to everyone and especially to you, Sylvia, in Sao Paulo. And thank you very much.
1: You. Bye. Bye.